Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Um, I'm not sure what role I'm going to play. Um, 
you know, um, uh, but, you know, with that three-guard line, you never you know who with, you got to come with a stronger intro. Yeah, I mean, you got to come with a stronger, you know, uh, example than than the Pistons of the 80s. Oh, I, I mean, I mean well, you got to, well, you know, like when you describe me, you always say this is the guy I know I'm going to get 15 and 10 from. I mean, you got to come stronger out the gate. So, Devon, what I was doing is I was getting my Jerry Jones on right there. I was stealing your shine, you know. <laughs> you all on the sidelines, huh? You, you right. all on the sidelines. You up there saying Romo's ready. <laughs> Romo's ready right now. What was up right with now, Jerry, dude? man? What was up with Jerry? Goodness. The scene, though, but did you see the scene? It wasn't just Jerry, but there was like a whole bunch of suits around him. <laughs> he looked like a he looked like a flat guy with his boys on the sidelines crossing his arms like he like I'm I'm just I'm just posing and waxing. I said, What Jerry doing? It it wasn't just him, it was like he like he had an entourage around him. I'm like, he clowning. And the thing about it, he looked comfortable. It didn't even look awkward. It's like were you surprised yeah. when you saw it? I was a little bit. Like, I was trying to I was trying to figure out, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? Is Jerry not just coming? I mean, it would have been unprecedented for him to come up from the booth um, or from his uh, his club seat to the sideline. That that doesn't happen very often. But not only did that Joker do that, he went to the head coach and started whispering in his ear. And you you could tell Garrett was like, "Is this really happening?" There's oh, national this is going to be on ESPN for the next week at least a thousand times. I need to fix my face the right way so that people can't read into my face. Like Jerry. Oh, boy. Has he has he surpassed Goodell in terms of our – is he our all-time line stepper? Is he the habitual line stepper? Where, where does he fit? Or is Goodell just too far ahead he can't catch up? I'm I'm not in a position to judge that. That's going to be a game changer call right there. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where you just you are you are uh, uh, you know looking at it and, and and trying to make things happen. And it's I just think about it. It happened at the time when everybody bought into this idea that the the, the Cowboys were were ready to just have a system, right? They are ready to kind of – they had invested in the offensive line. They had really stopped being flashy, and they have just kind of, you know, decided that they were going to do it the right way to win. You know what I'm saying? They're, gonna, they're not going to take any shortcuts. We're not going to get Manziel. We're going to just do it the right way, and then Jerry does this, right? Real Hollywood. Yeah. Like, yeah, even though we got the stars, we got the big – Stadium. This year's Cowboys is about rolling up your sleeves. It's lunch pailing. We're going with DeMarco Murray, and we're going to make things happen. And all of a sudden, Hollywood Jerry shows up. You know, I, I was like a Dallas preview. It's like I felt like I was going back to the 1980s. It was Dallas and who shot? You know, Jr. <laughs> it was like that's how I went back. I was like, I thought they want to start doing, you know, the old Dallas uh, line where they, they they used to go. We all used to do it when we were out there playing around. They used to 
stand up and then go down into their stance. I thought we were going really Hollywood at that moment. But, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I just I sat there and I was like, what is he doing? Okay, he down there he's trying to check on things. Well, I've seen Jerry on the sidelines. Where's he going? Uh, he probably just kind of walking over here. But he's walked over here before. Is he trying to whisper in his ear? Sweet nothing. <laughs> and and when you say the quarterback's ready and you turn and you see it's the owner, it's not the head trainer, right? It's not the assistant coach. It's not the little guy carrying your uh, cord, right, That that is trying to make sure you don't trip in the old days, right? It's your owner. What you going to do? Are you going to put him in? Or, I mean, because there's an argument to say that Brandon Wheaton was actually playing pretty well, don't you think? He came out, he got 10 points for the board. I mean, if you're there, do you yeah, keep him but, in? Or you bring Romo in. What do you, what do you, you know, think? But, you know, that's fool's gold. That's fool's gold. Mm. Brandon Wheaton giving you a, get a strong two possessions. Now, keep in mind, he would have had to play most of the second, third, and fourth quarters. So that right there is at least 10 possessions. Um, him giving you two still gave him a lot of room to give you four or five horrible possessions. <laughs> but when but when they brought when they brought Romo back in the game was it was it late in the fourth quarter? So Whedon had already kind of taken on some of that work at that point. I mean, basically you brought him in towards the end to see if you could get a drive going. He almost threw an interception. He got he got crushed a little bit on on uh they they came with the what they call the casino package right they got it and hit him uh, but he didn't have too many possessions in there and the bottom line is you know Demarco Murray was the one eating up people and you weren't even running the football I mean yeah. uh, that was the part that just kind of it kind of threw me off but yeah Jerry was Jerry was out of control man you 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 hit it right on the head uh, I, so and then you compare me to Jerry. So I feel real. <laughs> Are you Jerry? No, I said I, I, was, no, I, said I was getting my yourself. Jerry on. No, yeah, no, you, you came in and just got my ear. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah. I'm going to get my Jerry Jones on and just steal your shine right now. I know. Get in my ear and be like, you like Romo ready. <laughs> he ready. <laughs> well, we got we got a couple of different things going on tonight, and, 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 and Phil T and I are going to go back and forth. and We got some interesting topics we're going to hit is that, you know, we're just going to give you the content we got. That's what we love about it. We're going to drill through it. We're going to give you the stuff. We're going to exhaust it. And you, like I always say, this is another addition to the album. Like each year as you listen to us, if you go back and it'll give you a sense of what the storyline uh, is in, in sports. You could you could track what was going on that year. And this is another you know, this is another song on the album that we're going to drop on you here tonight. And we got a lot of good stuff. And, and uh, so I'm going to hit you with the intro to let you know uh, to kind of give you a sense. You know, the season started. You know, uh, you know, we, you know, we love talking NBA basketball. And so one of the things that always happens around this time is you really start to evaluate some of these current stars and you're trying to get a sense of what kind of impact they're going to have in the season, and you always get those questions about where people place in history. And so we're going to talk about uh, a couple people that we think um, if they do some certain things, they could crack that, you know, that 50. The next time the NBA does that all-time 50, these names might be on the list. You know, beyond 
you know, the, the people we know beyond LeBron and beyond some of the folks that we know, some other folks that we think could be in that discussion. And, and that's going to be a good uh, thing to do. The one thing about sports growing up is there's always that cat that you like, you know, if he couldn't get out of his own way or if certain things didn't happen around battling with, you know, uh, some type of dependency or addiction that this person would have been an all-time great or would have been in that conversation. And I got a couple of gems I want to talk about uh, around that. I got some stuff that Phil can be like, oh, I didn't that, that way I came out of left field. I got a couple like that. I'm, I'm interested in how, you know, what he's going to talk about as it relates uh, to, to those kind of things. And so we'll talk a little bit of that NBA and, you know, kind of all-time great in a couple of different scenarios. And then we'll get into a little bit of NFL conversation, more around, you know, for the past couple of weeks we've been kind of getting real technical with, you know, ranking, power rankings, you know, who's doing what, action kind of stuff. But, you know, there's been – you know, a recent conversation that's been going on, particularly with Seattle, you know, defending the Super Bowl champs around their quarterback, Russell Wilson. And it seems like it, it, for a guy that's so kind of, I think, very straightforward, he's somewhat of a lightning rod when people talk about him, whether it's, you know, um, people criticizing his numbers and what does that mean and winning the Super Bowl. But, but now there's some talk about this conversation about his identity, you know, you know, part of the issue of why uh, Harvin was uh, traded was that, you know, he was leading uh, a group of folks who felt like, you know, Russell wasn't black enough or Russell wasn't paying attention to engaging the black athletes on the team. And, you know, given that our background is in somewhat education and we look at these issues, we want to delve into that uh, a little bit. And, you know, we got game seven tonight. You know, it's kind of weird to be doing the shows, but we got game seven a lot of things happen with the, you know, the the MLB and and what's going on and and really, you know, you think about teams like we're looking at right now with San Francisco and and Kansas City. You know, uh, I remember when Kansas City was the team, you know, under uh, George Brett uh, when they always were competing, and then they had this long drought, and now they're back in hit in the, um, you know, uh, going in Game Seven, and then you have a team like the Giants who for most of the season wasn't really there was some conversation i was actually at pac bell in june with folks and you know people weren't quite sure where the giants were going to go they knew they were going to compete but they still didn't feel like they had it all together but teams like the giants in st louis always seem to put it together so how do you build a team uh, in this day and age and you know phil and i can talk a little bit uh about that um and then you know obviously the college rankings came out this week and a little discussion about what's the why you know what's the impact of doing it so early, given that we have so much of the season. We want to get around that, and then kind of delving into what we might think about the current rankings right now. So we got a lot on the table. Um, you know, I'm going to drop a, a last word uh, tonight um, to, to get things going. But it's this has been uh, such a, a, a fruitful couple of weeks, and you know, and, it, and then as Phil and I have shown if something so moves our spirit, we might jump. We might drop some, 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 some other stuff in the game because you know it, it kind of, it kind of, it kind of moves you know uh, our spirit enough that that we feel like you know we want to talk about it. And so 
we have the freedom to do that. But we want to cover those topics that as we build this relationship with you, that we can hit some of these real good issues. And so, you know, um, the one thing we always like to, you know, drop here early on, you know how we get it down because it's where we get the hot button kind of topics is our, our funky editorial. Fellas, the one thing we need to say, shall we say it, y'all? Melvin, right. Jimmy, Coleman, Ryan, say it. Everybody want to get funky one more time. All right. So there's always a time, you know, what's been great about this movement in the in the NBA this year where you have players moving to some different spaces. You got LeBron going home. You got Kevin Love going. You got Paul Gasol moving. You got some some movement happening. You know, a lot of these conversations and evaluating the movement has to do – we always have these conversations around legacy. And uh, – the the NBA did their top 50, and it was a very impressive. I mean, NBA knows how to do this. They did All-Star Weekend. But one of the things, you know, is kind of we have the beginning of the season, and we got some, some stars that are trying to, you know, LeBron, people like LeBron have cemented their legacy. Dwayne Wade, I think, cements his legacy. There's some stars, Dirk Nowinski, you know, these are folks that you know, you know, these are – are pretty much Hall of Famers, right? You got a list of those folks. But you got some other folks who are might be there, kind of there, who their resumes got some issues that that if they fill those blanks could really solidify them um as in that top fifty if we were to do it again uh here soon. And so um I'm gonna start out a little bit, Phil, if you give it to me. I'll let me start out. I got the ball in my hand. I'm I'm um and the reason why I'm starting out might be because one of the guys I'm going to talk to is like, he's, this is one of the issues. <laughs> he's the point guard, but he's, he's holding on to the rock. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's, he's holding on to the rock, and probably one of the criticisms is he need to get that rock up, right? He need, he need to get, you know where I'm going with this. He, he need to get yeah. that rock up. Uh, We're going to get a chance to see him shine individually in his first month because his running mate, the big dog is sitting on the sidelines, and that's Russell Westbrook. And the reason why I say Russell Westbrook is that he's a lightning rod. You know, you can he's a he's a Hall of Fame kind of a, a, a maybe a, a top fifty talent as you look at what he's done. But what what keep, might keep him out of that is the fact that he is seen as someone in some circles as holding KD back, and in other circles seen as you know. Uh, a legitimate superstar, and there just needs to be pieces around all of them. And so when I thought about it, is one of the, there's some things I think that would solidify him in the top 50. You know, one of the things that people might not know about Russell Westbrook is that he was a Pac-10 defensive player of the year. When you look at his resume, and, and one of the things I really noticed about him uh, last year in the uh, playoffs that was amazing, he had a series, a couple series on defense where he was just locked down. And I think because he gets so much of this criticism around this offensive stuff that I don't think people validate him in terms of what he is as an elite defender. And that's happened because he, he hasn't been on any all-defensive teams. I don't, think he's got, I don't think he's ever even been on an all-defensive first, second, or third team, and I think he might be that type of guard. And so I think part of it will round his game off is having that recognition um, as that elite defender 
that shutdown defender as well as that kind of that score. And so I think if by the end of his career he's got four or five placements or four placements on all defensive team selection, first team ballots, that kind of thing, that shutdown piece, I think that's another piece he needs to have uh, in his resume. The other thing is I think he will need to have um, either a finals or league MVP as part of that piece uh, with a championship because I think – I think part of his narrative is whether or not they can win a championship playing the way he plays. If he wins a championship with KD particularly uh, and is that significant person doing it, I think that will submit – that'll be something that will counter some of the major arguments people might have against him when you try to do that next 50, even though I think if you look at a lot of his numbers, they resonate. If you look at the – uh, the, the kind of elite player is they might warrant this kind of consideration. I think those other things uh, hold him down. I also think there's some things statistically he has to improve on. One is that his field goal percentage. And that's, I think that's part of why he gets the criticism is his field goal percentage in the playoffs, whatever. You know, his best that I've seen so far is maybe 45, 46%. He needs to – I, his, he needs to – that is, his field goal percentage and his three-point percentage needs to be in a different space. And part of it is that would communicate that he's, a, he's not only um, a deadly scorer, but he's efficient and he's, he's efficient and a, a calculated scorer. That means he's thinking and playing the game. And there are times when I don't think he uses athleticism to control the game the way he should, and he would get higher percentage shots. Uh, and so I think that would be something that is important. The other person that I have on this list for me is Kevin Love. I think Kevin Love um, and his numbers, Kev, what Kevin Love has to do is a little bit different. Um, Kevin Love's numbers are the kind of numbers that put you in the top 50. Where his biggest criticism is, is really is in the NBA, the stage – at the end of the day, is the playoffs. And I think that what Kevin has to do is go deep into the playoffs. He has to be a factor in going to defense. It's got, he's got to have finals appearances, right? It'd be nice if he was an MVP in the finals. They might not win, but he's a significant person there um, in that he's done that over multiple years. So I think it'd be harder for him to be the league MVP playing with LeBron, but he could be the finals MVP. Um, in a way. And I think given what he's got going on and if he was a significant contributor and, you know, having big game five sevens and, you know, key person making it down the stretch in the fourth quarter, I think that solidifies because that's the main criticism against him. Everything else, people aren't really criticizing him on. But I think if he can do that, which is a lower bar in a set, in, I, I would say in terms of uh, in Westbrook, uh, is what he needs. His numbers are incredible when you think about, you know, He's already been a three-time NBA All-Star. That was in the West, <laughs> where you yeah. know the, the crazy West. And he's already been, you know, he, so he's been the first team three times, and he's been the second team two times. That was in probably the most competitive group of power forwards. He found his way to break through on it. He's been the most improved player. He's been he's an all-rookie. He even won the three-point championship. So he's been a uh, rebounding leader. He's got so he's got some things on his resume that put him in these elite, and he's got some historic numbers 
But I think that having that impact in the postseason, which is really about a lot about the NBA legacy, you don't necessarily – it's good to win championships. The championships get you in the little, the little room. They get you – you know, that's oh. a room where, there's, you know what I'm saying, Explain where the that. tables are. Well, the little Explain room – Explain that. So, the big so there's the yeah. – so, so let's start. There's the 50. <laughs> now, getting the 50 gets you the jacket, right? The 50 gets you the jacket. Y'all see Carl and Zeke and all them on with that jacket on. You know, that's the ja- that's the leather jacket. You get the jacket. The jacket is good. For most people, the jacket is good enough. Shoot. Both Phil and I would love to have a jacket, right? That's right. Then there's that group that's in the top ten. That gets you the jacket and a scarf. You ain't cold no more. They might throw a little something on there. You might get They might give you a little bottle of champagne, a little something that go on it. But then there's this little room. Now, at the head of the table right now, you know, and you got to knock on it. It's like when I was at the NBA All-Star Weekend when it was in Minneapolis, uh, uh, they, they were hosting for Shaq. There was a room. You could get up to the second floor of Princess Club, and there was a whole bunch of stars up there. But you had to have a pass to get up on the second floor. But then Reebok was having a party for Shaq in the back. That was <clears> private. You had to be special to get back in that room. That's where you got to hang out with Tretch. You know, you got to hang out with, you know, the superstars at that time, the, the hip-hop folks, like the elite. You got to get in that room. That took a different thing. So this room, and this room is Michael George at the head of the table, right? You know, we talk about there's a couple of people. It, it might be five chairs in that room, six maybe. And that's where you got the big – now, Mike has got the big piece of chicken in the room. But everybody else is eating well in that room. They can cater to the drinks overflowing. You laughing at everybody else who can't get in the room, who knocking on the door, and they serving the best mm-hmm. stuff. Now, now we, we these folks may not get in that room. Now, Kevin Love, depending on how his career goes, he, he could be an interesting cat for a room like that. But that's multiple championships in which he he could be considered. But his numbers are elite, are historic. What is what people are questioning is is does he have the dog to carry it in the playoffs? Can he be the dog in the playoffs where, you know, where, you know, where everybody, the lights are on, Chuck is there, uh, 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 Jet's there, you know, the lights are on, Shaq up there, you know, everybody's there, the lights are on, and are you performing in game three, four, five, six, seven? You know, you, when you're going head up against San Antonio and they're running all kinds of stuff, you overcoming it. You know, LeBron understood how to get that done. Can Kevin Love perform in that life. If he does that, then, you know, he's doing all the other things, and I think that would be the icing of the cake. And then you – that would catapult him into that top 20 group, maybe that top 25 group. I mean, it may be, you know, kept, you know it could – he could, he could be the kind of person to knock a couple people out of there in that top 20 group. So those are two that I feel could do that. Phil, as you think about that question, who, who were you thinking about? And we want to get you a bottle or do, of water. Or do you have any – or do you or do you have any or do you have any or do you have any questions for my team before I jump to you? Yeah, we got to get you a bottle of water and a towel. You've been going at it. You... <laughs> That's that one I mic, mean, man. We twenty five minutes to the show. We twenty five minutes to the show, and uh, let me introduce myself, uh, uh, fans. I'm Phil T, sports PhD. Uh, Devon didn't quite get around to that. Um, but uh, I will tell you, I have questions about Kevin Love. 
I do. In yeah. terms of a guy that has potential to get into the top 50 of all time, I feel that Kevin's love, his ceiling now is to be in the same conversation as a Chris Bosh. And mm. and I don't think Chris Bosh's ceiling is top 50 right now. Top 100, perhaps, but not top 50. Because we saw what he could get done by himself. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who will never get surplanted in the top 50. Um, guys like DeBusher, guys like Jerry Lucas, who didn't do much. Um, well, I don't want to speak off turn here, but uh, they had minimal team success. Um, except when they came and joined guys with other talent, then they won championships. And, you know, but they were beasts when they played with teams that had minimal talent. They put up huge numbers, which I think is Chris Bosh. I also think that may be Kevin Love, for better or for worse. You know, if that's a fair, unfair assessment, I think that's where he's at right now. So I, I would say that, um, I, I would say Kevin's a little bit different. I don't think he's, I don't think he's Chris Bosh in the way that the narrative of Chris Bosh is a, a, a little misguided in the sense that what he's not getting credit for is sacrifice. He he wasn't Chris Bosh because he could be Chris Bosh. His maturity level allowed him to sacrifice with that with with a group of other champion type cats to go at it. That's the one thing I would say about Bosch. However, with Kevin Love, there's things that Kevin Love does that this Bosch is not in this category, that there are very few people in history had the ability to do. The way he – you got to – he's rebounded, but he's still a stretch three, a stretch four. So he's still he's – he's, he's played up rebounding numbers. So he's doing what Chris Bosch is doing in Miami, but he's still effective rebounding and posting. That is amazing when you know he's going to do it. Like, he has no other help. And his ability to create offense off of rebounding is only, I think, lined up with a couple people in history, his ability to kind of do that skill set. Whether it's Wes Onso, maybe Dave Collins, but there's some people who fundamentally can do that and create offense as a big man off the, off the outlet. And so I think there's things he does skill set-wise and producing on the boards that logic would say he shouldn't be doing. Like, how are you spending some time? How are you uh, stretch four in some settings, in a lot of settings, but you're still getting offensive rebounds, defensive rebounds, outlets? So I think there's some things he does skill set-wise that don't put him in that category as much. And then I always make the argument, there's nobody who's great who didn't have other great players around. Even Jordan, the greatness came because he had other great players around him as well. Pippen wasn't a slouch. And then he even had some B players who were good players. So he would even admit that as great as he was, he couldn't really do it without having the right pieces around him. And Pippen's still a top 50 player. And I think think he's probably closer to the Pippen space in terms of his impact on the game uh, than to the boss space. I think if you were the categories, he in the Pippen space, he in the worthy space, He's in the McHale space. You know, I think that's the space where you are great teams, but you have an impact. I think that's the space that love is in. I mean, if you can't make the playoffs by yourself, 
You ain't in the top 50, period. Yeah, but you're talking about the West where a team that got like 48 wins didn't make the playoffs. Like, you got to put that in context. Like, people say that. If his team was in the East, he was in the playoffs every year he played. In the West, as loaded as teams were, if you didn't have a running mate, you weren't going to make the playoffs in the West over time he played. And that had nothing to do with him being a superstar, but look at the teams he was competing against in the West. I mean, his teams won games. If you put his, the record of his team in the East, he would have been in the playoffs every year. So when you, when you went in low 40s, high 40s, you carry a team to that end, you can't make the playoffs. That, is that really you? Because a superstar should get you, what, 30, 40 games, right? You know, you got to have help with other things. He, he got – look at his record. He got he, – they had competitive. It wasn't like they weren't doing it, but you had to win almost 50 games to get in the playoffs in the West. So is, is that fair? Evaluation? I mean, the Boston could have one. been kind of critical. Yeah. Boston was in the Kevin East. Love. They weren't were strong. Go ahead. Kevin Love is an excellent player. He's one of the – last year he was certainly all NBA worthy. Mm-hmm. But talking about all top 50 of all time. Um, the the question just, is they need to fill they need to fill blanks, right? What blanks do they need to fill, right? That, that was a question, Like, What blanks do they need to fill? And I'm telling you, if he fills those blanks, I'm not saying he's a top 50 right now. I said these are the blanks he has to fill. So if you think about the blanks I described, if he does those, I think he will be top 50. Okay. And those are high blanks. I'm saying make the finals right. I'm saying be an MVP, win a title. If you win a title, he would be there. I'm, I'm not saying – I'm not giving him a low bar. It's a high bar, though. Because of the things you're saying. The things that you're saying is why I said what I said. Because you, you couldn't say that if he fills those blanks that way. Then that wouldn't be your argument. That's my only thing. So wh- who would you have, given that Kevin Love – obviously Kevin Love is not on your list. He's not. He's not. <laughs> I think a guy like Chris Paul um, is very close to being a top 50 player. I would put him in the top 50 right now, but I think that would be a very, very highly debatable conversation that I may lose. Um, Carmelo was another guy that I think if his career were to end right now, because because it's year 2014 and we had the opportunity to watch Carmelo underneath the microscope, if he were to end his career without having a championship, I think he'd be outside of the top 50. However, if you look at a guy like Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, other guys who had excellent statistical careers um, and did take their team to the finals, uh, I think we give them more of a benefit of the doubt because they played at a time where during the NBA's golden years, for one, and two, we only got to watch them during the playoffs and then during select times throughout the NBA season. With Carmelo and with ESPN and and just everything that we have in terms of things at our fingertips, everything Carmelo does bad is magnified. And the fact that he's so talented, yet teams seem to thrive without him. <laughs> I mean, think about, think about how... 
how strong that Nick team was with Amare um, during his first second year before Carmelo got there and then what they became. Uh, I think we knock him for that. But if Carmelo were to put something together in the next couple of years where he had a team that would compete in the East, maybe even make the finals once, and certainly if they won it, we put him in the category of Dirk Nowitzki, which I do put Dirk into the top 50. Another guy on the on the far outside right now, but I think he has a potential because he's at the towards the middle to the beginning of his career to eventually make it to the top 50 is a guy that, like Steph Curry. I think Steph Curry has the ability. Like, he's a new breed of point guard. He's a guy that can score with the best of them, and we've seen a lot of NBA point guards that can do that. But we haven't seen many guys who can score like he can and also is becoming a, a a premium distributor of the basketball. And he's a sneaky good defender. He's getting a lot better. To me, he's close to being the best well-rounded point guard in the league. However, he hasn't had much team success yet. And he's getting to that stage, fourth, fifth year, and beyond where we're starting to look at him like, okay, we can no longer put you in this group of the young players. You're established now. Now you got to make it happen. you got to make it happen. It's almost like Tony, uh, Tony Romo. You know, Tony Romo has been the quarterback for the Cowboys for 10 years. But yet there's still that feeling as of a year or two ago that he's still an up-and-coming guy. No, he's not. He's not. He's towards the back end of his career. We need to get okay with that and comfortable with that. He kind of is who he is. Um, Steph Curry is kind of knocking at that door. Well, we'll give you another year or two, but at some point we need to understand you are who you are. I think Curry has the ability to take over a game like Isaiah Thomas did. But at the same time, I think he gets it where if Golden State or wherever wherever Curry lands, if they put together enough talent around him, I think he'd have no problem to take a step back like Isaiah did. Isaiah was averaging 20-25 a game, but when he got more talent around him and he realized that he needed to do less and let guys around him do more and average, you know, 17 to 19 a game and the team would be better, he was okay with that. I think Steph Curry could be a guy like that. And having Steve Kerr out there, I hope Steve Kerr, build something around him. Because I think Mark Jackson was on his way of doing it. He was. I saw a progression of that program Mm. and of Kirk over the last two or three years that I had not seen in in Golden State in years. So hopefully Kirk can be that guy, you know, kind of like in Chicago. Doug Collins got you to a certain point, but you need another guy to get you over the hump. I hope that's Steve Kerr. So my guys that are knocking at the door are Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, and Steph Curry. So I would say, so this is my thing. Mello I had in the the top 50. He's knocking somebody out. Mello is basically in the, at this point, he's in a Dominique range. He's in that space, you know, guy that had an impact. You know, he's one of the top two, three players of his generation. With all the criticism, he's he's a he's a he's what a uh, eleven time All Star or something. Like that. You know, on all the teams, seven time on all uh, uh, all NBA. Um, 
He's been a scoring champion. When you talk about, even though on all those criticisms, what it is they're saying, what allows him to compete against LeBron? Like when, when you're evaluating Carmelo, you're not evaluating anybody else. You're evaluating him on not even on Chris Paul's level or, or, or whatever. He's in like, is like what separates him from LeBron. That's like his, his evaluation level. And if you're in that conversation, you are already in top 50. It's for, for Carmelo, a lot of times, is, is he going to be a, is he in that top 20? Is he in that top 10? I, that's why I see the argument around Carmelo as a top 50 player. Chris Paul's an interesting guy because I came late. It's a game changer. I had reservations about Chris Paul. I don't know why. And it took game changer. And I had to sit and watch Chris Paul to really learn to appreciate. And people, the listeners are like, what's wrong with this cat? But it took me a while to kind of – he was a quiet taste for me because uh, I couldn't quite figure him out. Um, jump shot looked a little awkward. Um, you know, he, he puts the numbers up, but I was trying to figure out could he, could he lead. You know, because I was trying to see him like Zeke. Because I think Chris Paul is a lot like, more like Zeke um, than I would see Curry. Because I think Chris Paul has the leadership. Chris Paul has this kind of competitive, as I've watched him, this competitive almost like Zeke had, like this killer, you know, like I'm going to fight a big man. (laughs) And big men look at him like, he's going to fight me. You know, the competitive thing, I put Chris Paul closer to Zeke now that I've really tried to pay attention to his game a little bit more. Um, I think for him, um, he's a finals appearance. He's an MVP of the finals kind of guy. If he can win this year, get a championship in his belt, I think that pushes him. He's the kind of person that you might debate on the outside. He wins a championship if he's leading it, makes some big shots, do some things. He had a turnover last year, but he, he does that. That might He's the kind of guy that catapults him way into the top. They might People might put him in the top 30, top 25, like on, on getting a championship or if he gets a MVP or league MVP, that kind of thing going on. Steph Curry's an interesting thing for me. And I was trying to think about who – Steph Curry reminded me of, you know, from my generation of watching players um, to try and, you know, I want to say it wasn't his daddy because he got more handles than his daddy. Um, but I was trying to think of kind of like who who he who he reminds me of that kind of gives me a a sense of you know where he he might he might in terms of uh, impact player. Because uh, he's a little different. I, I think part of his game is he can't be a one-trick pony. So you alluded to assist. People still just – I think part of what's going to hurt him is the fact that his shooting is so great that people don't see the other aspects of his game. And so he'll get a lot of votes for that. And so I think part of what he's going to have to do is – and this is going to be a marketing thing for whoever he plays for. As people beginning to um, uh, talk about the rest of his game, even defensively, is he a liability? I mean, I think for guards, and this is what I was talking about with Westbrook, you know, not being a liability on defense um, when you're that size guy. I mean, there's something – Zeke was never a liability, right? <laughs> Zeke was tenacious on both ends. Um, in a way. And so, and I think Chris Paul is that way. I think that's where Steph has to go. And he has to be known for that. I think people see Chris Paul in that light, but I think Steph's Curry's shooting ability sometimes drowns out the noise in the rest of his game. And that could hurt him. He could be like an Alex English type, 
right? Who's who was who's a great player, but because he is such a great shooter, you know, people forget how good he was in other aspects of his game. You know, that's something you know that you have to you have to be careful of if you uh, 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 you know if you are Steph Curry, um, and some of that has nothing to do with him. Some of that has to do with also. <laughs> frankly, how people market and brand those other things he's doing, how they lift that out, whether it's his coaches and whether it's other people pointing those things out, the development area, I think that's something that's going to need to happen. So what do you think about that? Maybe did I strike a nerve with you? No, that's a fair argument. And I forgot to introduce you because you, you came and Jerry Jones me. You know, you threw me off. <laughs> all in there. I was trying to call the play. I'm looking over here, and, and, and the owner's here, and I'm like, 23 stretch, stretch, 3, 4, uh, X, Y, Z, right on counter, on X, Y, Z, wrong, stretch, jet, 5 on 7. And you were Wait a minute. Me off. Wait a minute. Now, 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 you forgot Jerry took the play calling duties away from Garrett. Remember? <laughs> At that point, he thought he was calling plays. He looked over like a, he's trying to look for a distraction to say to this guy, I'm on national television, I want to choke him, but I can't because he's he killing me. <laughs> this is a category, man, I've been looking forward to all day, man. And you're going you gonna, you gonna, you, you gonna to trip out on me uh, on this category. So this category, Phil T and I are going to talk about Guys who could have been on the list, the what-if guys. You know, they're too short uh, of a prime. They just never reached their potential. The Scooby Snacks was calling them. You know, they couldn't stay away from that stuff. That stuff, that stuff couldn't keep them up. The nightclub, and they just couldn't, they couldn't realize the dream. But everybody around them said, this cat is a cat. When you talk to the Hall of Famers, when they reflect on these cats, they go, that cat could play. We were scared of that cat, right? And so this is a list. You know, Phil, since I've been, you know, I, you know, I was running that offense, like, you know, I, I've been doing that one mic, which I could get on the uh, podcast. I'm going to drop another one. You know, I feel like I can flow for a long time. I feel like Jay-Z sometimes, you know, Biggie sometimes when I'm flowing. And so I've been flowing too much. I want you to lead this segment off. Who did you have on your list? of the what-ifs kinds of guys that if things had gone differently, they could have been on that list. So I, I ended up including four guys, and it was tough for me to get down to these four. Um, I'll start off with a guy, uh, Pistol P. Maravich, the mm. guy who averaged 24 and 5 throughout his career. In every season, he averaged essentially 20 points. I think his first season he was at 19 but essentially 20 points throughout his entire career with the exception of his last year where he only averaged about 13 points between uh, the Jazz and the Celtics and, you know, he played half the season because of injury. Uh, This is is a guy who who scored 40 points on 35 different occasions throughout Mm. his career. Uh, To give you some comparison, Carmelo Anthony has only scored 40 points less than half of that. And this, we all know about what he did in college, averaging 40-plus plus points a game, one of the toughest leagues in the country. Um, 
unfortunately, his year, his career was cut short for injury, especially that was during a period where a lot of the top flight guards played 15 to 20 years. Pistol Pete mm-hmm. played nine years. That's it. Mm-hmm. Other guy is Yao Ming. Yao Ming averaged 19 and 9 throughout his career, and he gave you a couple of blocks per game. He was he was a very um, capable passer as well out of the post. Injuries, you know, the guy was seven foot five, seven foot six. So for him to get seven or eight quality years, I guess is something to say. But mm. um, I always wondered what could have been with Yao Ming because he he played towards the end of his first few years in the league was was really towards the air towards the end of the era for classic centers. You know, when he was coming in, Shaq was the dominant guy. But there were there were also two or three other centers who were elite. Towards the end of his career, it was really just Yao and a few other guys like a Shaq that was really no longer a dominant Shaq, but still because the center position was so weak, he was still one of the better centers in the league that would make the play uh make the all star game. Dwight Howard's another guy that was emerging towards the end of Yao Ming's career. So Yao Ming was really one of the last true classic centers that we saw um, in the mold of the centers in the 70s and 80s. Uh, So I always wondered, how would he have succeeded had he played another five or Mm -hmm. six years? Brad Doherty is the third guy I thought about. Oh, that's a great great selection. Brad Doherty used to give my Detroit Pistons fits. He used to give them fits. He played eight years. He averaged 19 and 10 over the course of his eight-year career. Um, but 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 here's something that a lot of people may not know. His last year was actually um, not the most recent strike year, but the second most recent strike year, the 93-94 year, was after Jordan's third championship when he went to go play baseball. And they only played 50 games that year. And, um, you know, Doherty averaged 17 and 10 in 50 games that year. Last year, the guy who averaged 17 and 10 his last year, um, that's saying something. And so you really wonder if there was more that he could have got out of playing another couple of years or playing at a lower standard. He didn't want to do that. Brad Doherty is a guy now who is a um, color analyst for NASCAR. And so mm-hmm. if you talk to Doherty um, or if you see him talk and just talk about his life, he had other priorities than being an NBA player. Playing in the NBA was a weight, was a was a means to an end for him. And so there were other things that he wanted to do opposed to being a shadow of himself for another couple of years. So, he didn't leave like John Elway left in terms of winning the championship, but he left with a lot of dignity. Tracy McGrady is the fourth guy. Um, <laughs> oh, that's game changer's guy, boy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a <laughs> Tracy like, McGrady. Pictures are game, pictures are game changer. <laughs> he loves it. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, Tracy McGrady had a stretch in which it was very clear going into every season 
that unless something drastically would happen, he would be all NBA first team or second team. In the 2002-2003 season with Orlando, he averaged 32 points. He followed it up in the 03-04, averaging 28 points. But if you look at when he first came into his own, because his first three seasons, if you recall, the 97-2000 season, he was second fiddle, a clear second fiddle to Vince Carter in Toronto. He averaged 7, 9, and 15 points his first three years. Then he got to Orlando his fourth year. And I'll read to you the years that he had following. His fourth year, the first year as an Alpha Dog, 27 points, 8 rebounds, and 5 assists. He also gave you, sound like Hubie Brown here, he gave you assists in the half, I'm sorry, still in the half a night and a block in the half tonight. So blocks and steals combined, he's giving you three of those from the shooting guard position. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> If you look at his fourth year on 27 a night, 26 a night, 32 a night, 28 a night, 26 a night, 24 a night, 25 a night, 22 a night. And then his last year in Houston, the 08-09 season, he was down to 16 a night, but he only played 35 games. Tracy McGrady has a stretch. I saw a football life the other day with Terrell Davis. In Terrell Davis's career, he had a four or five year stretch that would rival what anybody did in the NFL in terms of from the running back position. Um, in the playoffs, well, during the regular season, people could compare him to Yale Sayers, guys that didn't play long, but they were impactful when they played. But when you look at Sayers, Postseason success versus Davis's postseason success, that's where you can make an argument that perhaps Davis needs to be into the Hall of Fame. I I parallel that to McGrady. The only difference is McGrady didn't win two championships like Davis did. But McGrady, for those seven years, he was dominant. You couldn't guard that guy on the perimeter one one on one. He's he's like a guy right now where really there's nobody in the league that can guard him. There might be a guy who can keep him, you know, instead of getting his normal twenty eight, he gets twenty one, and that's a that's a win for the you know for the defense. Um, but Tracy McGrady was a beast, and this was a guy. And you mentioned the game changer. Love this guy. This is a guy that I feel like he was really good when he played, but there was just so much more that I wanted from him. For example, there was there was that one year where he averaged 32 points. This was in the 2002-2003 season. He got to the line 10 times a night. That's the guy I was expecting every year. Instead of him being around six or seven trips to the line per game and even towards the last few years, his years at Houston, he was around four or five trips to the line. And and, and that was a guy that I didn't like. He settled too much for perimeter shots. He he wasn't aggressive enough. Um, Tracy McGrady is a guy that if I was starting a team today and I could pick any player from the last 20 years, he would be a first-round pick for me. 
he would be a first-round pick. If I had to pick anywhere from that 15 to 30 um, pick round, like a non-lottery pick, and I could pick any guy over the last 20 years, Tracy McGrady would get, be in that conversation from 15 to 30. That's how high I think of him. You had some – those are gems, man. Those are some gems. I mean, you hit this one out the park, man. Uh, the Tracy McGrady one, I think, is, is like – the poster child for what we're talking about. And um, because there are so many people, I mean, you take a person like, and you and I know that, you know, game changers, knowledge of basketball and his, the way he combs through it. When he first said Tracy McGrady and where he put Tracy McGrady on some things, both of you and I were like, we paused, but it's because of the things you just said that when you, he, he was the one who teased people the most. He teased folks, and there's so many people of his generation of basketball, you know, who feared him and also hoped he didn't realize his full potential, right? You rarely have a a person with that size, handle, able to range. Um, I mean, mean, he was was Scottie Pippen-like with range. Think about that. Um, And so it's it's just – I mean, I think you're, you're, that was a great one. The one I love is your Brad Darty, man. I don't think people understand. Like, people talk a lot about Cleveland and not winning championships. I don't think people understand that Cavs team was an incredible team. It, but the East was a lot like the West is now. I, forget the East. Just that, 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 that division of Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, you know, Milwaukee sometimes. I mean, just in that division, it was like the SEC of basketball, right? You think about their team. They had Hot Rod Williams, Mark Price, Doherty, I mean, Elo. Robin I mean, Harper. Yeah, the Pacers. Harper. You, then you, you, got, you got the Pacers over there. You got Jordan. You got Detroit. You got that mix of folks around there battling. And uh, even Milwaukee coming and nipping you at the toes. And that team would win, like, 50 games, man. 45. I mean, and Doherty was – I remember I – didn't, didn't, I think you said, like, he came over, didn't he, in a trade or something? Because he was supposed to go to Philly. They did something – I think Barkley even talks about it. Hey, Doherty was supposed – because I was a Philly fan. I think Doherty was supposed to end up in Philly. And he ended up in Cleveland. I was almost sick to my stomach. And But he's an incredible – you hit it right up. He's, he's a forgotten star. Yeah, when you think about the top flight centers in the 80s, and and there were a lot of them. I'll just name a few. Mm -hmm. Listeners out there, don't burn me up via text or Facebook. I know I'm missing a few, but you look at Elijah (laughs) Wan. You look, you know, Ralph Sampson was a guy that I really wanted to put on this list, but I stayed away from Ralph and I stayed away from Penny Hardaway because they're on all the lists. But you look at Ralph Sampson, Elijah Wan, Kareem, uh, Moses Malone, Pat Ewing, um, just just so many strong centers. I tell you what, on any given night, Brad Dirty could give it to him. <laughs> okay, they were scared of him. They were scared That's of right. him. He, he was giving it to him. He he was he was a big <laughs> fundamental before the big fundamental. You know, mm. he was a big fundamental before the big fundamental. I mean, he was he the drop step, the hook, hand both ways. I mean, you even talking about people. I think back in when he played Kevin Willis. I mean, Mark Eaton. I mean, you had centers all over the league um, who were different, who 
were active people you had to pay attention to it. He was he was he was someone that people respected every night. He's putting numbers up. Oh man, it's I, you you hit that one out the park, brother. I'm gonna tell you that right now. I sat back and I was just like, this kid is killing it, killing it. <laughs> now I'm about to take this in another direction. I really took serious the what ifs in a different way, and you're gonna be like, wow, he really. I got a name you probably even thought about, but but. I'm going to take this in a totally different direction, but if people who really go back and look at these two people I'm talking about, you will understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm going to start with this one first because Barkley talks about this guy when he talks about the people he feared playing against. He's a name that always comes up, and Kenny always jumps in and says, you're right. And everybody who knew it, and, and even C-Webb who did play against him, who knew about him growing up, said you right, is Derek Coleman. Derek Coleman. Mm. It must, it, tonight we got a Syracuse trip. Because yeah. <laughs> he played at Syracuse, Ron Cycli uh, with a whole bunch back in that day. Derek Coleman, lefty, was an incredible uh, kind of person that was had incredible skills. Let me just give you a you know, Phil T was breaking down the numbers. This is this is as a rookie. As a rookie, he averaged eighteen points, ten rebounds as a rookie. Yeah. Coming out the gate, went up to nineteen, then the twenty, 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 averaging eleven. And and this is a guy when you talk to Barkley. If you ever watch him play, he probably could have averaged fourteen, fifteen rebounds if he wasn't if he was really serious about it. One of the things I loved about it when I was getting ready for this, this is a great quote from Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated said about Coleman, Coleman could have been the best power forward ever. Instead, he played just well enough to ensure his next paycheck. That right there says all you do. When they compare him, they say he's compared to elite power forwards like Cobb Malone and Charles Barkley. But he had the added value that he had three-point range. So think about Cobb Malone and Barkley, but a, a guy who's six who can handle the ball and shoot for three range. I mean, from Detroit Northern, incredible talent. If you don't understand, he's rookie of the year. He was the number one pick of the draft. This guy is someone that if you talk to anyone in that era, I don't care, you talk to Michael Jordan, you talk to anybody who played around when Coleman played, they all would have said that. They all will say that, how great this guy was. The other guy, and this is – and the way I'm going to start this out in this other guy, there's this article written by uh, Zach Troff. The, the title of the article is Athletes Who Damaged Their Careers – with drug abuse. This guy, the only two people ahead of him on the list, or the only people ahead of him on the list, kind of along the lines of our conversation we have tonight, is Steve Howe. Steve Howe was an incredible pitcher for the Dodgers, went to University of Michigan, was a uh, National League Rookie of the Year, helped the Dodgers win the World Series, had an incredible drug problem, incredible talent. 
Diego Diego Mardana, who was compared to Pele. Like he had a weight problem. He had co- if you watch the World Cup, they did a, a really good uh, special on him in terms of the type of player he was compared to Pele um, and Lynn Bias. So those are only people ahead of this guy on the list. The people below this guy on the list is Dwight Gooden, Vin Baker, Strawberry, Lindbergh, who's a goalie who played for uh, uh, the Flyers, John Daly, and Josh Hamilton. In all their respective sports, all those cats, even Vin Baker probably should have been on the list that we talked about. I mean, Vin Baker was a beast, and he just fell off. But these are people who are, who are uh, below this guy on the list. I'm going to say a name, and most of you are not going to know this person, except for people who really understand basketball and know the history. His name is Roy Tarpley. Mm, wow. You went back to the Chrysler Arena, 41. Did, 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 did I do that? Did I do that? Did I do that? He plays for the Dallas Mavericks. First-round draft pick for them in 1986. This guy was on all-rookie team. He won six uh, man year award early in his career, but you got to understand this guy's numbers. I, I got a couple things. He is the only person, and he played for the Mavs. He had twenty points and twenty rebounds against the nineteen eighty eight Lakers. This is like his second, third year in the league. He was averaging. We took, they used to call him twenty twenty. This cat. Has, still has the highest rebounding average for the Mavs in the playoffs. He averaged 12.8 rebounds. One of the things, this is interesting, in his second year against Barkley, he had 19, he had 19 rebounds and 15 points in 34 minutes. Now understand, he was coming off the bench as a rookie on that squad, second year. <laughs> and, uh, Donaldson, the center for the center for the, uh, uh, Mavericks, said Roy and I controlled the boards, and Charles Barkley wasn't even his wasn't his usual rip warring self. Guys talk about him in ways that were amazing. When you look at his stats uh, over his his first couple, this guy was in his first couple years, he was averaging, and he was playing one playing starters minutes, seventeen points. 11 rebounds, 16 points, 13 rebounds, 20 points, 11 rebounds. He was the youngest person to be banned. He was the first person to be banned from um, the NBA for drugs. Stay away from it. Yeah. They kept putting him in these things. They had all the stuff he had to do. He couldn't stay away from it and was banned at a young career. But if you watched him in the playoffs against those great Laker teams, you watched him – Folks feared him. He controlled the glass. He could score. I mean, people thought he was out. He's one person that if he could have, and part of the story, backstory about him is that this is a young man that Bill Frieder, who was a coach at Michigan, found at St. Cecilia, which is when you hear Jalen Rose talk about the place, you know, where, you know, if you can play summer, that's where people play in ball. And Frieder was out there and saw him playing. And so this was a guy that was highly touted. And I think part of being in the you know in the limelight, the fame caught up to him. But this is the guy. Every time I think about what he would have been if he could have controlled his addiction, um, 
and what it would have meant for the Mavericks. The fact that the Mavericks really leaked their future to him um, in ways that they thought were special. It changed the direction of their franchise because of the way that he fell off. He was a dominant force. He wasn't just a force. He was a dominant force. That cast like Kareem and all these folks didn't want nothing to do with They didn't want nothing to do with him. <laughs> they didn't want nothing to do with this kid. That, those are my two that I had. Uh, I did. Uh, Brad Doherty was one I was considering to do some work with, so I'm glad you brought it up. I, I love that segment, man. Um, were, was there somebody that wasn't that, that you thought about that you didn't have on your list that you you thought, wow, you know, maybe uh, a person I thought about. And this is an interesting. Vin Baker was one I, I really actually did think about because I don't think people understand. Vin was on a run, and then he just fell off the cliff. I mean, Vin just fell off the cliff. Like, his fall was so quick. You remember that? His fall was so quick, you were like, what happened? Like, his yeah. world just crashed so quickly. He was such a dominant force. The other person is Sean Kemp. Yeah. Sean Kemp was such a dominant force. And then, you know, that that, that I'm going to tell you what. That strike ruined a lot of cats. I don't, I don't yeah. mind idle times. He, he, Vin Baker, I think, and Sean Kent, when they came back post-strike, were two people who were affected by whatever happened in that strike time. They were never the same players. They, had, you know, they did not take care of themselves during that off time. There were two players that I, I thought you know, were budding stars, and if they put together another you know, three or four, kept that trajectory going, um, you know, could have been – um, the kind of players that we uh, that 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 we think could have been in that in that in that space. Yeah, Sean Kemp well, is an interesting guy because Seattle got underneath him quick. He was mm-hmm. he was 27 years old. He finished uh, the 96-97 season. Um, that was either the year that they lost to. Or that was the year after they lost to the Bulls in the final. And this is a guy mm-hmm. who. Um, that last year in Seattle, he averaged 19 and 10, which was pretty much his numbers in Seattle, yeah. 17 and 10, 18 and 11. I mean, that like that was the range he was in. And they moved him to Cleveland. And Cleveland got a good player. You know, from 28 to 30, here's a guy who yeah. averaged 18, 20, and, and 18. Uh, but like you said, then that strike came. <laughs> that strike did some cash in. In the two years after that, he he started eight games, although he played, you know, 100 and, 140 games. So, I mean, he went from a guy averaging 2011, 18 and, and 9, to averaging 6-6 six, six in six his last three years. And, and I think the final one is actually on this list I was saying that, uh, that uh, Tarpley was on was uh, Lynn Bias. I mean, the only thing between Lynn Bias and the Hall of Fame was not having an overdose. I mean, anybody who watched him play, people talk about Jordan, but even Jordan, he played like Jordan but was bigger, if you can imagine that. So He played with the tenacity of Jordan. They played the same way, but he was bigger. I remember when Maryland played at Carolina, it was like a last second that he stole the ball. He did a, a dunk. I'm still, it still is etched in your mind. I mean, he was, he was a combination in my mind of Jordan and Dominique in his power, but then he still had a soft J. 
um, his game, and to think that he was going to come in and um, in some ways um, he could have added some life to Bird's career, and I, I think because uh, he was kept coming in towards the tail end. I mean, he would have helped really bridge that gap for the Celtics, but he was just – I mean, if I if, – if, if, you know, if there was a person that – that you would say, you know, kind of like LeBron came in, you like, you kind of knew he was going to be a star. You just didn't know how he was going to get there. That that was Lynn Bias. Um, if you have not seen, if you can't YouTube, check out his game. He was one of the most dominant players I've ever watched play. He's one that I, I just life just took it. You know, he didn't have a chance to even start his record in NBA. But anybody who had sense to watch him and the fact that he was going to the Celtics. I mean, it was one of those things where you could pretty much say, uh, "Yeah, this 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 cat is gonna this cat is gonna make it gonna make it happen." So, yeah, I love that conversation. You know, we get the game changer in um, uh, to give his list up. I'm gonna be excited about it, but um, you know, uh, it's, it's been great. This is the Real Sports Guys, RealSportsGuys.com, uh, brought to you by Resistance Digital Solutions. I'm struggling today. And uh, uh, on the rocks and uh, XL Academics uh, and our good friends at Frederick Accounting, we want to thank uh, all of them for supporting us uh, on the day. If you want to connect with our sponsors, please go to realsportsguys.com and click on their icon. It'll take you right to their website. And uh, please support them and let them know that the Real Sports Guys sent you. Um, so we got a little bit of stuff that we want to get into, NFL stuff, Phil. We'll spend a little bit of time on this. We're not going to drag this out, but, you know, both of you and I, um, I think one of the things that we love about doing this is it allows us to, you know, at times touch on some some deeper issues related to sports. Uh, we're not going to get too deep in it. But, you know, Russell Wilson has been a unique kind of cat that's elicited a lot of different reaction. And, you know, you know, folks who've listened for a long time know that, um, you know, my association with University of Wisconsin and, um, had a chance to be around people, been around Russell. I never really had a chance to spend much time around him, but, um, you know, faculty that I work with, advise, actually work with him. And just by all accounts, this guy is just straightforward. I thought everybody who's interacted with him is a great person. But there's something about him when he presents himself that, you know, people feel that it's too clean. And sometimes people come at it. So it's, And he gets judged in, in ways that are pretty unique, you know, um, you know, uh, he, his mechanics, is the way he played quarterback in college, the only thing that separated him from, you know, Andrew Luck in my mind was height. But he's still this kind of person that gets this kind of scrutiny. And so, you know, they move Percy Harvin, and there's a backstory. There's a backstory when Golden Tate leaves. Like, these are two receivers now leaving uh, under some, some certain circumstances. It's not the first time in uh, NFL that – Frankly, quarterbacks, if Tom Brady, if somebody's not doing the right thing, Tom Brady gets somebody out of there. If, uh, you know, and that probably happened early on, same thing with Peyton Manning. It's not uncommon that quarterbacks, if you're not doing what they need to get done, you get moved. So that's not uncommon and whatever. But in this context, there's part of the results was that there was this glowing faction around around him and whether or not this, the thoughts, particularly from black players on the team, whether or not he was black enough. So that was an issue, and it, it caused a big debate. I listened to Stephen A. Smith, and he was cracking me up. He's like, "This is stuff is ridiculous," but it's it's a part of this the continued storyline of quarterbacks, and 
particularly quarterbacks of color. Um, and when it comes around blackness, you know, it, it has this historical context. You know, some of you may not know or whatever. It's the one-drop rule. So it, part of the, the whole thing around uh, census was that if you had one drop, you were black. And so this, you know, so the reaction you get around Tiger Woods and how he defines himself or, you know, I think it was a Raven Simone or somebody recently defined himself or, you know, yeah. or, or how somebody like uh, Russell Wilson might describe themselves, this idea that if you have one ounce of blackness, so in, in the black community in some ways is taking on that one drop rule in terms of defining who you are. So that's the context. Hearing some of that, Phil, and we can go back and forth a little bit on this. What was your what was your reaction to that whole kind of narrative? I thought it was silly. I thought it was silly because athletes, most high-profile athletes today have a team of people um, advising them what their message should be. Many times you're writing their message. Um, some people don't know, but most most athletes today have ghostwriters in regards to um, Twitter or Instagram, you know, messages that they write. And so the message that we get from athletes today, I think, um, even though – it's cool to say that I'm keeping it real and, you know, this is what I am, I'm wearing my backpack, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a lot of filtration there. There's a lot of um, let me put out the message that's going to offend the least amount of people. And so this whole idea of Russell Wilson um, questioning his blackness I thought was silly. When you look at what this young man has done in terms of um, – advancing the stereotype of African-American quarterbacks, <laughs> um, yes. advancing the stereotype of um, doing things the right way, like Derek Jeter did. Um, I think it's silly. I look at a, a quote that Charles Barkley had, and Charles Barkley came to his defense. Um <laughs> Black. Mm-hmm. Charles says, black enough, I don't even know what that means. And that's kind of where I'm at. That's right. That's kind of where I'm at. And Charles also said, I think we're brainwashed thinking if you're not a thug or an idiot, you're not black enough. And, and that's just ridiculous. I mean, those out there that don't know me, I'm I'm African American. You might not be able to tell by the way I talk, but I am. Um, and I just think the whole conversation was ridiculous. Yeah, I take a step back and say, would there ever be a a highlight or a um, a headline that would say that Tom Brady's not white enough? I don't think so. And so, honestly, I didn't pay much attention. I really didn't because it's one of those things that this is a 1980s headline that in some way there's some kind of perfect storm and perfect combination of it not being a whole lot to talk about when this came out, that now it's a 2014 story. Um, so I, you know, I, I had a problem with it, and I think with me being having a, like with me having a problem with it, I just didn't pay a lot of attention to the story. I mean, I prepped for it because I knew we were going to talk about it, but it was one of those painful things. Like, why am I wasting my time doing this? You know, I got my fingernails to clip, or I can shape up my beard. <laughs> 
or I can get the dust or the keys, you know, of my laptop. There's, there's a lot more important things I could be doing than this. And and I just walked away and said, whatever. Yes, love it. So part of part of why I you know, and we'll only hit this a little bit, is you know, I really the underlying thing I looked at was this a lot of this comes from my angle I took about from this is that the the one thing that the quarterback has a responsibility of in most teams is developing the locker room culture and its kind of climate around in a person. So really good quarterbacks, they say Brady does this, is that they have they, they spread out their engagement. They're, they they touch different aspects of the locker room, checking in on people, making sure, you know, as a quarterback, you're kind of the mayor of the space because people realize you will a lot of power. So how are you engaging? And so, you know, if the issue came out like, you know, he's always kind of over in the corner hanging out with a certain group of guys, he's not really kind of engaging the locker room in a way that you, you hope your quarterback would engage the locker room. That's a different conversation, right? Because I do think, particularly in NFL locker rooms, there is a role for the quarterback as the leader in face to, to really set that. And I think, you know, I think the great quarterbacks have a way. They are seen as kind of the guys in the locker room. And they, they find a way to touch and connect with people, you know, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. You know, there, there are times where, you know, they're not over with the defense and everything, but particularly on the offensive side of the ball. It appears that it's a fractured relationship with his receiving core. And given that his receivers, part of it is all black, and there's no real engagement, because the quarterbacks usually try to connect with their receivers because there's a lot of times they're spitting, trying to be on the same page, connecting. And they didn't see that type of connection, which part of what I think some of the reaction was. And given that they were all black, I think that created the context. But if it's about his leadership in the locker room in terms of making those interpersonal connections, that's one thing. And that's the thing that that's something to talk about. But if it's if it's couched in this kind of idea of blackness, then then I reject it. And it shows the nuance of lack of sophistication. Not you know monolithic kind of people. Uh, there's nuances across all of our races and intersections. And to start defining that way is is crazy. So we said we had to say about that. But you know, given who we are, we we should comment on those things. We're gonna spend a few minutes on uh, here quickly on on baseball. Obviously, game seven's on. Things are going. I mean, these are two teams who are uniquely built. One of the things we want to talk about, and Phil, just maybe a few minutes we'll hit this. As you look at this World Series, is there an emerging model of success that's different than the traditional kind of Yankees and, uh, you know, Dodgers, you know, you know, arms race? Are we seeing, particularly with these teams like San Francisco and Kansas City and you know, St. Louis always being there. Is there a model that you see in this, that's emerging around long-term success and why we see teams like St. Louis always there? We always we see the Diamondbacks, not the Diamondbacks, but the Rays always making their way back. You know, is there a model that you see emerging around success in baseball? Yeah, you're you're starting to see two clear-cut models, and. It's not new for us to see these two models, but we're starting to see the second model pick up some steam. The first model is buy your team. Build through your your farm team, um, your minor leagues, but don't don't depend on those guys to help you on the big team. You know, offer them as assets to get 
talent that you'll pay for, so there's no salary cap in baseball, uh, you'll pay for, but they won't, you know, talent you draft that makes it up through the farm system, they may never get to your major league. Um, That's what you see the Yankees and the Red Sox do. They'll pick up these big acquisitions, big-name acquisitions, um, and then they'll trade them for you know to other teams who are interested in getting cheaper, um, younger assets. And that's the second model: build your team through the draft, through um, the minor league, and a little bit through free agency. And that's what we're seeing with the Kansas City Royals. The Royals, which as we talk right now, we're in the eighth inning of a game nine. Uh, I'm sorry, of a seventh game. And Kansas City is a team that at different stages, this this core group of six or seven or eight guys, they won championships in double-A, in triple-A. And now they're having success in the major leagues. You're starting to see that happen more frequently. Even the Giants. So the Giants have built more um, than Kansas City through free agency but much, much less than the big boys like the Cubs or the Yankees, the Red Sox have. So you're starting to see that there was a period in the aughts and in the late 90s where you could buy a championship um, if you bought the right guys and you had good pitching. That's what the Yankees had. Um, But now you're starting to see guys, teams with, with lower payrolls being very successful. So, you know, I think that is a, it's an emerging um, way to go, but I think given how how thirsty <laughs> fan bases are to make a splash, uh, for their team to make a splash, general managers, it's not a safe model unless you have the support and the open arms of ownership that, hey, this is a five- to six-year process. Not you need to make it happen right now. Yeah, I heard it. Phil T dropping this thing like you could tell he he played baseball. He's a and when you pitch a little bit, something like that. You know, you 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 grew over there by you know, uh, you know you grew over there with Jeter and them, and so you know you know what kind of baseball players they raise over there on the western side, western part of Michigan. They raise some baseball players <laughs> over there. So he dropping that sign. I'll take that. College I'll football rankings. College football rankings came out. SEC is all up in there. Folks talking. And I'm talking about Big Ten. You know, I'm Big Ten country, grew up Big Ten. Stop crying. Stop crying. Somebody. <laughs> I'm tired of y'all. I've been trying to defend y'all. Y'all just been making me – I feel like Steve Aspen. Y'all been making me look bad for the past three or four years. We got to stop beating <laughs> people. Stop crying. Earn it on the field of play. So we got Mississippi State at number one, Florida State two, Auburn three, Ole Miss four, Oregon five, Alabama six. The Crimson Tide fans going crazy. TCU, Michigan State, Kansas State, Notre Dame, and then Georgia sitting just outside that top ten with Arizona and Baylor. So, what did you think about this first thing? You know, I think it got some energy. I think it was at first I was kind of nervous about strategy, yeah. but I love the energy around it has been really good. What's your quick thoughts about about it? I liked it. I really uh, did like it. Um, and I'm thinking, why not do this with NCAA basketball? You know, I think mm. I was listening to Dan Patrick. You mentioned this. You know, why not mention who are the top four seeds in each 
region in January and do it once a month leading up to mm. Selection Sunday. You know, I mm. I like it. I do. It creates energy and it's a it's a level of transparency which I think that college football needs. To yeah. say, hey, here are our top four teams right now. Here's what we're thinking. And to see Alabama not in that list, I loved it. I loved it. Yes. I really did. I really did. So I enjoyed it. So if quickly, if you had um a team that was, was that was not in the top and that like in that bottom half, who do you think's gonna sneak up into that four? Mm. <laughs> I hate to say it but Alabama. Um Oh boy. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go against the grain here. I'm gonna go with Michigan State. I think Michigan State could be interesting and I think I think Kansas State holds up stuff uh that could be interesting. Uh there my Georgia pick is sitting there at eleven. I think Georgia might be the one sticking because they, they, they'll get to the championship and they'll face one of those teams. Y'all we got around to it. You know, we, we hit it hard. Um last word I'm telling you, hey, I gotta say something to my Steelers. I'm loving you, Tomlin. You just like me. I came back from fantasy football. I got my victory this week. We're not giving up. We're not giving up on the playoffs. The playoffs, we're not giving up on it. I love the way you got my boys battling. And I got less miles. Coaches this week, less miles. Mother passed away, emotional night. Boy stepped up, got you the victory. I love these coaches who are leading their teams out of doldrums. That's how we do it. RG, until next time. See you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.